What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. And Dave is going to introduce our next guest. Oh, yeah. We're, uh, we're so stoked to have our next guest on. Uh, he runs one of the most successful goaltending schools in the uh, Toronto area. Uh, he's, he's shared his story with over 50 uh, different NCAA uh, athletic departments and hockey teams. Spent seven years as an addiction counselor with the uh, St. Louis Blues. Is currently lifestyle and addictions coach for the Arizona Coyotes. And most importantly, he's, tw- he's 23 years clean and sober. So please welcome you. Jamie McGuire. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, we are grateful, to, very grateful to have you. And uh, what we do here is uh, we bring guests on and we get them to share their stories and uh, in hopes that sharing, sharing stories can help others out there still struggling. Sure. And uh, again, very thankful. So uh, if you want to take it away and kind of tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, we'll jump in, ask you some questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. When I work with young athletes, um, I mean, I'll get into it in a second, but that's kind of where my addiction really took off was when I was playing university hockey. And, you know, when my, my whole objective when I go out and talk is to kind of change that young athlete's perspective on what it means to be an alcoholic. Um, so like I'll ask you guys and you guys are more educated, but uh, you know, the, I usually start my talks by asking, you know, what's your definition of an alcoholic? Um, you know, I'll just throw it out there. It doesn't matter whether I'm standing at Harvard or with St. Louis or, or, uh, with you guys, I'll say the same thing. What's your definition of an alcoholic? Don't think just quick. You know, what would you say? Mine is continuing to use despite the negative consequences. Okay, cool. David, just off the top of your head now you, again you guys are educated so well i don't know that i would i would just say uh yeah um uh, not not being able to put down put down the drinks no matter uh you know the people you're affecting yourself and and uh the values that you're that you're um you're losing okay so i i'll usually what happens is a bunch of kids will put their hands up but when i say kids i'm talking you know, 18 to 25 or 18 to 30. And they'll say somebody who drinks every day. And, and I love that answer because, you know, I, in my opinion, it's not how often you drink that determines whether or not you have an issue, but it's how you behave when you drink that determines. Um, when I was in treatment, um, and I'll get into my story in a second, but when I was in treatment in uh, 1999, there was a woman there who, it was August, and she said, I've only drank twice this year and I only drink wine. And I'm thinking, you know, and people are a little bit judgy early in recovery. And I'm, like, well, I'm way worse than you are. Like, what are you doing here? And, and she said, but the two times I drank, I have two DUIs. I cheated on my husband and I broke my six-year-old daughter's arm because I pulled it so hard when I was pissed off at her. She's an alcoholic. She drank twice in six months, but she's an alcoholic. And when it's the light bulb kind of goes off when guys hear that and they think, wow, you know, because they've been justifying it for years because they only drink on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or on nights when they don't have games. So my objective is to kind of change the athlete or the anyone's perspective on what it means to actually be an alcoholic, in my opinion. Okay. So um, growing up, I didn't, um, I grew up in Richmond Hill. Um, 
went to Richmond Hill High School. I played minor hockey in Richmond Hill. Um, you know, I played junior. Um, I got drafted by London. Uh, and it, it's it's funny. Uh, you talk about this. My best friend was drafted by the Toronto Marlies at the time. And he trained his ass off all summer long. Uh, Bill Armstrong, as a matter of fact. He's now the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes. And he trained his ass all summer long. Um, and I didn't do a thing. And I was cut after 48 hours of camp in London. And he went on and had four years of a major junior career. And, you know, it, it was that it was that summer that I was 16, 17, that I really started to find my way into drinking. Um, and again, I didn't drink often. But I was when I did, I was out of control. Like it was poor decisions. You know, I was the happy I love you drunk, you know, hugging everybody. Oh, my God, I love you guys. You're amazing. And um it it uh it's funny the the choices and the decisions that you make when your 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 whole life revolves around partying and drinking and and you know so i i ended up playing 4 years of tier 2 never really maximized my potential um I didn't really use drugs very often. I mean, I smoked weed a little bit and I didn't, you know, it wasn't really for me. Um, I got to university and in my third year, there was a party, a hockey team, football team. There was Coke in the room. Guys, I'd never seen it. I'd, uh, it was in the movies for me. Um, and I remember, I can still remember that his name is Scott Purdy playing the football team. I can still remember him saying, okay, Mags, you're up. And fuck boys. Like I was, I was really drunk and, and I can remember thinking I'm only going to do this once. I'm only, I, I can't, I'm 23 years old. I'm peer pressure. Like yeah, there was no reason to feel peer pressure. And I didn't want to say no. And, and I thought I'm only going to do it once. And the guy beside me, who had never used before either, who's still a really good friend of mine, and we've spoken since, he thought, I'm only going to do this once also. Donnie never used again the rest of his life, and I never stopped for like almost nine years. And we both meant it. I meant it when I said, I'm only going to do this once. I meant it as much as he did. But it's, you know, I was an addict before I tried. You know, I was an addict before I, I, I often say I bent down a scared little boy and stood up Brad Pitt, like it changed my world. And, you know, Donnie didn't get that reaction. He, you know, he had fun that night. He thought it was okay, but he never did it again. For me, my life changed that instant. Um, and I've got a university education. My parents are still together. I've got brothers, two brothers and a sister. You know, it's, it's, I'm not your stereotypical drug addict, you know, and it, it was like a light switch went off in my brain and I had determined that this, the, the, the noise stopped for me, you know, the noise stopped. And, and I truly believed that it was the answer to all my problems. Um, I had had a friend who had killed himself that January um, and it was not drug related. Um, but it was pretty devastating for our group of friends. You know, you're 23 years old and, and one of your best friends at home kills himself. And, and, and I'm not, that had, I'll get back to my steps in a little bit. That's part of my story too. But, you know, it was a shitty time in my life then, you know, and I was confused and I didn't understand why Mike did it. And, and um, 
you know, it, there's so many different factors that, that led me to that choice in that moment to, to use. Um, but, you know, looking back, I'm grateful because at the end of the day, it, it opened up a whole new world to me as far as looking at my drugs that I mean, my alcohol use was concerned. Um, but I didn't use again for about six months, but I thought about it every single day. I remember I obsessed over it. Um, I graduated from school, I got home and you kind of seek it out. Right. And, and for me, it was, you know, I finally found a few of my friends that did it. Um, that kind of were on the down low and then you know i figured out who i could get it from and when, once i got home because i didn't really want to make a big deal about it and then and i only used when i was drinking and then i found my own dealer and that was the end i, I lost control of myself it was you know and i made i remember making deals like you know i won't use before six o'clock and then, and then it was okay. Well, fuck. I won't use before noon. And then it was okay. Well, I won't use before I go to work. And then it was, you know, I can remember I went, you know, twelve days one time, and I don't think I closed my eyes for more than ten minutes. Um, and I know you guys have been there, and 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 you know, I'm not trying to glorify it at all or say that I was worse than anybody else because I don't think I was. But for me. Um, I'm a 200 pound guy. I was 165 pounds by the time I went into treatment. Um, I, I can, I became so obsessed. It became my entire life. And, and, you know, in the program, it says you talk about or an NA, which is what I usually did. It was talk about your life becomes about using and finding ways and means to get more. And that's it. And, and, and that's truly how my life, you know, how my life became. Um, I met a girl throughout this period of time um, who didn't use, uh, and she she was pretty straight. And I remember guys saying, "No, oh, James, thank God for her. You'd be dead. Like, you know, she's the only thing that's going to help you slow down a little bit." Um, and I thought, you know what? If I'm with Chris, Christina, um, I'll slow down, and 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 you know, I should ask her to marry me because if I'm engaged, I'm going to quit for sure like absolutely 100% I'm going to stop using. Um, that didn't, trust me, guys, it, it didn't stop me when I asked her. It made things worse. Um, there was a night we were at, uh, they had a, we had a, she had a cottage in Muskoka. And I can remember um, we were at, a, I was driving the boat that night. And it, uh, I started a fight. I ran out of coke. So it was gone. I ran out, I started a fight on purpose and I, I called my dealer in Toronto and I said, look, um, I'm gonna meet you at like 3 a.m. Um, so I started a fight with Chris, ended up back at the cottage. I got in my car and I headed, I peeled, I remember peeling out of the drive. I'm two and a half hours from Toronto and I'm hammered. And I've got these wake up pills in the car, these pink wake ups that you can get at shoppers, it's just caffeine. And I was crushing them and snorting them in the car. and. I got halfway to North Bay before I got pulled over. I was going the wrong way. Like I got pulled over. There were like two or three cars that kind of cornered me and, and, and I got pulled over and I ended up in, in um, I think it was Bracebridge in the OPP station in Bracebridge. And I can remember 
And this is how sick I was, man. I can remember being in jail that night thinking like I was crying and, and, and I didn't know what to do. And I'm thinking, you know what? I am never, ever, ever going to run out of Coke again. Like that was the biggest mistake ever. Did I ever fuck up? Not because I, I didn't give a sh- I didn't care that I drank and drove. I didn't care about anything else. I was so pissed off that that's why I did what I did because I ran out. And I swear to God, I didn't run out again until the day I quit, um, which was only 16 months later. But um, it was funny. I, 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 I say sometimes that I quit every day for a year. Like it, it, I knew it was wrong. But like, I can remember watching people and thinking, how are they, how are they having fun? Like, how are they, like, I was in the cottage or I was in a room looking out a window at people having fun, water skiing, doing this, doing that, whatever. And I'm thinking, I'm not out there. I'm using in the cottage by myself, you know, sneaking into a bathroom. And I'm thinking, how are they having fun? Not high. You know, like, that's how mixed up your head gets, right? Um, so I get I get to a point now where it's coming close to the end, right? So my wedding is coming up and I'm thinking, okay, you know what, boys? I'm not gonna use the night of my wedding. I've used every day for six years now, right? Every day. But I'm not gonna use the night of my wedding because you know what? I'm just gonna take a night off. And I, so huge mistake because I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. The only thing that keeps me from not passing out or closing my eyes is the fact that I was using Coke at the same time. So I'm a mess that night. Christina and I get out. I I was in the basement. We got, we got married at the venue that we were at. I was in the basement. One of my best friends found me on a payphone. I was calling my dealer in Niagara Falls. It was 10 o'clock the night of my wedding. I had just been married. And I was going to take a cab to the falls and try to get there and back without anybody noticing me. And he grabbed me and said, are you in your fucking mind? Like, what are you doing? Like, you, you're not going anywhere. And so I can remember, oh, my God, guys. I don't know. So we get back, Christina and I, the girl that I had married, we got back to the hotel and we're standing in the elevator. And I guess I pass out against, she's standing facing the door and behind her. I fall asleep. Doors open, she gets out, doors close, I'm still in there. I don't know what floor we're on. I don't know where our room is. I don't know anything. So a couple, about an hour and a half later, she finds me on a couch in the lobby, brings me back up to the room. And first thing I do is open a bottle of wine. And I, anyways, I spilt this huge bottle of wine all over the wedding dress and passed out on the floor. And, you know, in the morning, I wake up, she's in the bed. I slept on the floor, wedding dress is a pillow covered in red wine. And I thought it was funny. Like I was telling the story. Like I was, I was going, oh, you guys aren't going to believe what happened last night. Like I look back and there's so much guilt and shame. Like we have zero relationship. We, we split up after about 18 months, uh, Christina and I. Um, and that's a whole different story, but um, you know, I feel bad. I, 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 I look back and I think, you know, you talk about the poor decisions that you make and, and it, it affects so many other people, you know, like she didn't expect to marry an addict, you know, she didn't know what was happening. I had everybody fooled. People knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what it was. 
Um, I be, you, you become such a good liar. Fuck, I'm on the 407. I'm at Young Street. I, I'm on, I'm so, oh, I'm at Bathurst. Like it's 30 seconds difference. But like you just get used to not telling the truth. And so I, I got to a point. Now I'm thinking if Christine is pregnant, then I'll quit. So doesn't she get pregnant? Well, certainly doesn't help me. I, I'm not, I still does not influence my decision or help me get clean. That's for sure. Um, and I realized I had, it, I was in such pain and had gone to such a dark place. Um, I realized that I couldn't quit and I had to die. It was quit or die. And I could not quit. It, 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 it's not, it's not possible. I can't do it. I've tried. I've tried every day. Um, and when I realized I had to die, I got a hotel room out at the airport. Um, and I, I got, I, I got a whole bunch of drugs and I used and, and I, I don't think I, like I, there was never like a suicide attempt there, but it was like, I don't care what happens to me right now. I'm going to use as much as I can. I think I spent three or four grand that weekend, but money I just certainly didn't have. Um, and now it's, I was there on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it's Sunday morning. I haven't slept. And I thought, what is going, like, what am I doing? I don't, I don't, do I really want to die? Like, because now I'm so tired that now I'm ready. I'm going to kill myself now. And that's when I got in my car and I drove to Mike's grave goes back nine years earlier than my buddy who had killed himself. And I'm stand, I remember, it was like this awakening I had, like I remember standing at his grave thinking, like, I didn't understand why you did what you did. You know, you, you fucked us all around. I don't understand why you did it. It doesn't make any sense. And in that moment, Mike's death made sense to me. He did what he did to save my life. Because I stood there and I thought, I can't do to everybody what you did to us. I can't. I still talk to Mike's mom and dad all the time. It's, it's 25 years later, 24 years, or yeah, 29 years later. They are still devastated by it. And I thought, I can't do to my friends. I can't do to my family what you did to us. And I know Mike didn't kill himself to save my life. I know that. But his death did. You know, so for me, I can remember standing there thinking, you know what, man, I got this. Like, I can't, you sacrificed yourself for me. And I'm not going to blow that opportunity, you know? And um, I kind of made a commitment to him at that, and myself, not just to him, but myself more importantly, that, you know, you something's got to change. And I phoned my mom um, and she met me, picked me up at the, uh, at the cemetery and I, I um, was married. My wife was five months pregnant at the time. Um, I went into a six week out, you know, you're dying. You, you need to get into treatment and there's an eight week waiting list. You know, there's a, there's a problem with the system, you know? So I do eight weeks or six and a half weeks of an outpatient program, the um, Oak Ridge and Oak Ridges Addiction Center. Um, and then I did 99 days at Homewood in Guelph, um, 
where I learned how to live again and how to, I think one of the best things that happened to me was having six weeks clean before I got into treatment. You know, because a lot of guys I watch, they walk in there and they got the shapes for the first three weeks, you know, and then it's 28 days and they're out. They, they didn't get anything, you know, but I had six weeks. So, I mean, it's a bit of a blessing that I had to wait. Um, but I, and after my first 28 days, they asked me if I wanted to stay again. I thought it was a punishment. I was like, fuck no, are you kidding me? But then I did. And then they asked me to stay again. And I did it four times. And when I left there, you know, they, they convinced me, they didn't, con they didn't have to convince me, but they, in their own, I went in as a drug addict, but I stayed as an alcoholic and an addict. I stayed as an addict. Like, if it makes me feel good, I want more. I don't give a shit what it is. It's working out. It's not working out. It's ice cream. It's French fries. It's, it's, it's whatever it is. If it makes me feel better, I want more. And I think that, and I'm not cured from that. I, you know, we call it the hungry ghost, right? That insatiable thing inside you that you can never fill. Um, and I have a dragon tattooed to my back. Um, and that's my addiction. It's not going anywhere. It's there always. It's fucking waiting for me um, to make a mistake. Um, and I took, I learned that life can be fun again. I learned that abstinence is like this much of the solution. Um, that the biggest part of the solution for me was lifestyle change. Um, Guys, I didn't set foot into a licensed restaurant for five years. Not even, a, like I said, not even a Swiss chalet. Like I would not, I didn't set foot in a licensed restaurant for five years. That was my goal. Like it's easy to say no, but it's easier not to have to. I kept myself out of those situations. Um, I work with a lot of addicts today who are still, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I'm going to the baseball game with the guys. Are you out of your mind? Like, yeah, you might not drink, but why put yourself in that situation with six other guys that are going to be loaded? Like, are you crazy? Like, I don't say it that way. I certainly try to talk them through it in a different way. Um, but because at the end of the day, you're going to make your own choices. Um, but for me, that's how I had to handle it. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I remember when I told you underestimate everybody in your life. You know, you're afraid. You don't want to tell. I stayed, I stayed using because there was so much guilt and shame. And I don't want to tell my parents. And I didn't want to tell my brothers and sister and my best friends. And like, because my really good close group of friends, they didn't know. But I hid it from them. And that was helpful for me in the end when I got clean. Because I didn't have to give that group up. You know, those guys that I played with, there's a picture on my wall in 1987. You know, I'm looking at it right now. Um, a group of guys, there's still five or six of us that are really, really tight off that team. And I didn't use with them. So I had that support. Um, but I remember, I remember my sister crying when I, when I told her. And, she, and I was like, what's the matter? And she's like, well, now I know why you missed my graduation and all my dance recitals. And it wasn't because you were an asshole. It's because you were sick. You know, you had an issue. And... 
Well, my dad, well, the, the story about my dad I often I tell is I was in the basement. My mom had brought me to my parents' house and he, I said, um, he sat down and I said, dad, uh, I have, um, I have a drug issue, a drug problem. And he said, you're not smoking that weed shit, are you? And I said, no, it's cocaine. And he stood up, he punched me right in the face and he said, okay, how can we get you help? And he's never been angry about it since he got angry and he's never touched me before that, never touched me after that, but it was, he was, you know, and how can we get you help? And my parents never turned their back on me. My friends never turned their back on me. My family, my, you know, I underestimated everybody in my life. I truly did. Um, and I underestimated myself. I didn't think I could do it. And, and you know, I, I've worked, my clean date is June 28, 1999. Um, it was 23 years on uh, this past June. And, you know, so many opportunities have been opened up to me as a result of everything that I went through. Um, you know, my recovery isn't based just on NA or AA. You know, there's some spirituality in, in it. And there's, <clears throat> you know, I was in treatment and there was, I remember uh, an addictions counselor was my roommate from BC and he was a heroin addict. And he had this book, Awaken the Buddha Within, on the shelf. I said, what's that? He said, oh, my mother gave it to me. I'll never read it. You take it. Loved it. Changed my world again. <laughs> you know, changed my world. Uh, it was written by a guy named Lama Surya Das. And I've done five or six meditation retreats with him now. Um, he's a bit of a mentor. Like, it, it, you know, so I'm not grounded in just, because I got hooked on NA, too. I was anchor area treasurer. I had my own home group. I was like doing two a days. Like that became an addiction for me. In the first five or six years, I was hooked, you know, but it wasn't healthy. No. Going to meetings is healthy, but not the way I was. Like it, I, like I said before, I'm an addict, right? So I truly have to find, I still to this minute have to find balance in my life. My 22 year old daughter, who was in the womb uh, when I got clean and sober, just graduated from UBC um, with her master's in social work, uh, specializing in addiction treatment, um, which is pretty cool for me. Um, and using art therapy to help addicts um, and has been working in treatment centers, um, doing co-ops for the last you know, two years. And is really cool because she's, you know, she hasn't been alive for me to use, but it's just such a big part of my story and our life. And, you know, it was really cool that she, um, that she went down that road. Um, and it was cool because it gave us something to connect. You know, we connected through it while she was away at school too. Um, I, I don't know guys, it, I have taken, I think what I learned in treatment when they were saying, you know, you should quit drinking too, is my first reaction was back up. I don't have an, an issue. I don't drink very often. Um, but when I broke down how I drank and the binge drinking and the diving over tables at last call, you know, cause I need six more and the blackouts and, uh, you know, everybody called me a half miler cause I'd always pass out. Thank God there wasn't Red Bull around when, when I was 16 <laughs> because, you know, at least I fell asleep, you know, without it. Um, but even Red Bull early, in, uh, 
six or seven years into recovery, you know, when I finally would go out again and do things, you know, I have a Red Bull. Well, fuck. Next night, I, next time I went out, I'm like, well, I had one. I mean, I can have two. Eight months later, I'm having six Red Bull between 10 and midnight. I was up for two days. Like, honest to God, it was a fucking nightmare. It was like I was on coke again. So, like, I don't even drink Red Bull anymore. But I was pounding them at the bar. It was like they were, you know, okay, I found my thing now. But again, right? Like, and, and it was progressive. It was like the one. And then next time I had two. And the next time I had four. And then it was out of control. So, I mean, you know, I, man, I got to be careful. I'm, um, I have to be careful with anything that I do still today. Um, but it's, you know, the type of drunk that I was, the type of drinker that I was, you know, shirt off at the bar as much as I could get into me. Um, and then, uh, then passed out until I found Coke and that, and that just, you know, oh my God. Um, but, uh, you know, I've made it so far. I, um, and I, I tell my story a lot. Um, and, you know, I was just recently in Arizona at development camp and, and, you know, you, we had 40 kids that were, you know, draft picks in the last three years who sat there. I did two different groups. We split them up into two teams and, you know, I watched and the reaction on their faces when I got into the whole, you don't have to drink every day to have an issue you know, guys coming up to me and shaking my hand after, and they're a little nervous because, you know, I'm, they can't really say much because they don't know if I'm going to say anything. And that's the problem in pro sports is they're terrified to come clean. They're terrified to be honest, but, you know, because they don't want to lose an opportunity. But a number of guys were like, oh, yeah, like it, you really changed the way I'm looking at myself. That's all I care about, right? Like as long as, you know, somebody out, I mean, it's a cliche to say as long as I help one person, but, I just want people to, everybody justifies their ridiculous drinking or, or drug use in the NHL because they don't do it every day, you know, or in the OHL or, or wherever it might be. Um, you know, it's funny, you talk about addiction. It's not just drugs and alcohol. When I first got to Arizona this summer, management pulled me aside and said, one of the biggest issues we have now is screen time. COVID changed things. Um, you know, and now we've got kids that are so addicted to their phones. It's not, it's not just video games. It's just screen time in general. And they're so addicted to their phones. You know, they get in bed at 11, it's five in the morning. They finally put it down. They're trying to do a pregame skate or they're getting to practice at 10 in the morning. And it's like, they're hungover. you know, John, there's a, a player on the Montreal Canadians who, um, hasn't played in a year with a screen time addiction. Um, and it's, it's actually not a secret, but Jonathan Juan has, it was a screen time addiction. And that was part of the reason why he didn't play last year. So, you know, again, if it makes me feel better or it distracts me, I want more. And, and you know, I know that's not uncommon, um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of like, that's where I am today. And, and you know, I, I have, um, I work with a lot of young athletes and, and, I guess my objective is just to, you know, obviously help them stay clean and sober, but um, it's more about teaching them about life and how life, life can be fun regardless. You know, you're not lost without it because there's so much fear 
about waking up tomorrow and not having it. What am I going to do? How am I possibly going to get through the next day without it? You know, and, and there are ways to do that, you know, and it opens up a tremendous, I mean, I could go on about the doors it's opened up and stuff like that, but. I had a quick question for you, Jamie. I have a, I have a bunch, but um, when you talked about, you know, uh, the drug issue and then realizing, you know, you had to, you had to put down the, the booze too. Yeah. Uh, when you got treatment. How, how long was that before you realized like you went there for a drug problem then realized, you know, the within, drinking. Within weeks, Dave, honestly, within weeks, like it was because I, I, I was so cocaine focused, right? I was so drug focused and, and, you know, I can remember her name was Sue. She was a counselor there. And I remember her saying, James, did you ever consider that? Like, did you, have you ever used sober? And, and yes, I eventually did. But when I started, I, I, no, I didn't. Like all my poor choices were, were made drunk. Um, and she's, you know, I started talking about times that I drank and, and I started to hear my own stories. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, I got an issue. Like, you know, that wasn't the only time I was, I drank and drove. Like I did it, I did it a dozen times and never got caught. Pulling over at red lights, opening the door and puking and then keep going and laughing to your friends. You know, um, <laughs> the, the decisions, um, the choices that you make. Uh, yeah, it, I, when I started going through my stories, Dave, I realized, yeah, that, you know what, this is a bigger issue than I'm giving it credit for. Um, I have a serious drinking problem because, listen, boys, like if we were going out tonight and we were post or pre-recovery sitting at dinner right now and we're going out at eight o'clock and now it's six. Okay. I wouldn't have a beer at dinner. That was me. I wouldn't have a fucking, why would I have a beer at dinner? I'd have two Diet Cokes and a glass of water because we're not going to start drinking until eight. So once I get to the bar, I'm going to start pounding and I'm going to go hard fast. But I was the guy. Now, there are guys who would sit at dinner at six o'clock and be loaded, too. Right. But that wasn't me. I was all or nothing. It was OK. Well, I'm not drinking yet because we're still at dinner. You know, um, that was the type of drunk that I was. But I mean, and, and the the rush you'd feel when you know you're going out and, you know, who you're going home with or who you what are you going to do or or how much are you going to drink? and you know, it's funny. It's so funny, boys. Like, I, I'll walk in somewhere with six Diet Coke now, and people are like, you're going you to fucking drink all those? <laughs> yeah, you're going to drink 24 beer. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes, I'm going to drink these six. Look, here's a I love it. I'm sorry. I'm hooked. Like, but they look at me like I, more than you ever believe, guys are like, and girl, you're going to drink all those? I'm like, yeah, yeah, probably. It's better than the 40 ounce or a rye you're going to pound tonight. <laughs> You know what I mean? The eight ball, yeah. but, but you know, a little aspartame, I'm not too worried about, but anyways, um, I, you know, I realized that within weeks, they, they convinced me. Um, uh, it wasn't tough to convince me. I needed a change. So yeah, I, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I'm an alcoholic. Jamie, man, I, uh, I really related to all that big time, everything down to like being an athlete and then kind of going out drinking and then getting into cocaine. And the exact evolution of it, man, it really, that hit home. Um, same as like the partner situation. Um, but I had like, I have one question when you're talking about like your relationship with Christina, right? Yeah, yep, that's correct. Yeah. Um, was she aware that you were using or were you no, able to hide it no, from her? No, I, I, she was not aware. And that's part okay. of the reason we were able to stay together. 
I mean, it was completely hidden from her. I don't know how. Um, well, I do. I do know. I was, I was really good at it. I was really good at it. And, and no one would have ever thought that I was using cocaine. Like, it was so far-fetched. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just not... I think, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, she didn't know. She didn't know until she did, okay. you know, until she did. And then, and, and that was the end of us immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, yeah. I She's still player. angry. She's still pissed. <laughs> you know? and, and I don't blame her. I, I don't blame her. You know, um, it is, it, it is what it is. You, you destroy a lot of people. Um, in the process and you hurt a lot of people and you know what her life has turned out wonderful and she remarried and has a you know we've raised an incredible daughter uh, not necessarily together but at the same time and uh, you know good for her I'm glad that things have worked out for her but yeah she didn't know at the time it was a complete surprise well, yeah you've become a pretty good liar yeah Jamie was your oldest was your oldest uh, was your daughter how those conversations go when she started getting to that age of, you know, when kids start to kind of experiment and stuff like that. Like, when did you have that, those conversations or were there any? Yeah, she, um, it, it's, it's hard to say. Like I, right now I have, um, I remarried like 10 years later uh, and I have an 11 year old and a seven and a six and a half year old right now. Um, and, you know, those conversations have already really happened to be honest with you. Like, Bo, my set, my six and a half year old, knows that Daddy doesn't drink. Daddy used to drink, but Daddy doesn't drink because it's not good for him anymore. He's allergic to drinking, is what Bo says. Because um, I, I, you know, I'll say, if you're allergic to bees, you're allergic to bees, whether you get stung once or a hundred times, and that's me, right? Like I drink one beer or forty, I'm I'm allergic either way. So, um, but the conversations with Tyson and I were very open about everything. Um, that that's my oldest. And yeah, um, she, she's careful. Uh, I think in the back of her mind, it's, a, it, you know, my, my father, um, you know, drinks too much and, and my grandfather's on both sides. Um, my, my grandfather killed himself. Um, my mom's dad, uh, when I was 15, um, he was an alcoholic, heavy duty alcoholic and he shot himself. Um, so, you know, it's in my family. So it, it is something I'm not afraid to talk to my kids about it. I'm not afraid to admit what I did. Um, you know, I was, it was really cool. One of Charlie, my, um, Charlie is my 11 year old daughter in grade six. Last year, one of her teachers came up to me when I was picking them up and she, she's like, um, you know, Charlie um, told us that um, you were a drug addict um, and explained that daddy, daddy's a drug addict and he doesn't use drugs anymore. And he hasn't used drugs in over, uh, she said 50 years, she told her, that I hadn't used in 50 years because, <laughs> you know, time gets a little screwed up for kids. Um, but she said you would have been really proud of her the way she was talking about it. And, and that's a 10-year-old. So I don't know if everybody's that open with their kids about it, but I, I'm, I mean, it's part of my life, too. It's what I do. Like, it's kind of, you know, it's there. It's front and center. Um, Tyson's careful. She, she's, she's okay. How Bo and Charlie are going to be, I have no idea, but we'll see. Um, I'm never going to tell my kids not to do something. What I'm going to tell them is you, you better know that, be aware, you know, know yourself well enough and don't be afraid to ask for help, you know, because that's what keeps us in those dark places is we don't ask for help. Right. Sorry. I kind of went on a little bit with that. Yeah. It's all good. 
Jamie, you were kind of, uh, you were talking about like talking to the players and I think it's kind of like plant the seed in a way, you know, you can kind of recognize signs as they develop and know that it's okay to come forward and ask if you have an issue. Um, I, I really admire that role and like, and how the approach to it. Um, but I'm more interested, I'm more interested in wondering how you came about that role and uh, what kind of inspired you to get involved with that? Well, great. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a parent of these guys. Um, I, I was, I played, I was in and around the game. Um, I have really good friends that are still kind of in and around the game. And it, uh, it started, I guess, with the Providence Bruins, a buddy of mine played there. Um, and he brought me, he, he talked to management and said, hey, man, my buddy of mine's got a really good story. Um, you know, and there were some issues, I guess, back in, you know, whenever this was, it was uh, shit, early 2000s. And I went in and spoke to the Providence Bruins and it went really well. And it, I got tremendous feedback. And somebody who heard said, hey, you know, I coach a prep school, uh, Brooks Academy in, uh, in Massachusetts. And I went and spoke there. And then it just kind of fed off of that. And, and I, I, I've spoken at different high schools and in the region, non-athletic, you know, settings. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of relatable because I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't play pro, but I'm just a guy who like was like them and wanted to play in the NHL and, and you know, things didn't, I'm not saying I was going to be good enough or anything, but they can relate somewhat. And so, yeah, it, it just kind of evolved like that. And, and I kind of took it from there and, and started the word just kind of spread. And then I started doing schools and next thing you know, I'm standing at Harvard talking to the athletic department. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Like, what do I have to offer these guys? You know what I mean? But I spoke and they thought it was great. So awesome. it, um, it's, it's kind of cool. The places it takes you. Right. Yeah. Really cool. What, yeah. What about the guys, Jamie? Like, you talked to a lot of the, you're talking about the young guys development. What about the, yeah. or like the veterans maybe that like are going to maybe be retiring and start and kind of going through a different transition in their life and those kind of, those kind of things. That's a great question too, David. It, it's tough because, you know, I'm good friends with Kyle Quincy and, and Kyle played in Detroit and won a cup in Colorado and he, he retired and, and, you know, he has a, you know, an, had a painkiller addiction and, and, and issue, which he talks about quite openly. Um, and, you know, when you ask him if you would do a different, and he talks about how bad it is right now, you know, I shouldn't, you know, they were pushing it on me and I was doing it and I needed it to play and it's horrible. And, but Kyle, would you do it again? Yo, absolutely. Yeah. I want to cop. So it's really hard. Like when you get past a certain point um you know there are serious issues in the in the, in the nhl with with um sleeping pills are a huge issue their travel schedules are all over the map um you know they're ambient non-stop like you know on airplanes are trying to sleep uh, and guys get hooked on 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 um sleeping pills uh, pain medication obviously in pro sports but it's it's tough to convince and cocaine is has made a comeback. I mean, it's a you know, these guys have lots of money, they're young. Um and, and it's funny, you 
a lot of them stop because they'll meet a girl and they'll get married and they'll realize that there's more things in life. So it's a phase for some, but it becomes a serious issue for some. And there's, and there's some sad stories, you know, um, of guys that, you know, we don't realize why their careers faded away or ended. Um, Scott Darling, um, Scotty, I don't know if I have a picture of him up on my wall. I don't, but Scott's a kid that I adore and we've, you know, he, it's okay if I talk about this. I remember I got a phone call. He was at Maine and he said, coach, uh, I got suspended because um, I got caught drinking and Maine's a dry school, right? So there's their coach, no drinking during the season. And I said, uh, okay, well, you know, one game, two games. He goes, well, it was one game, but then I got caught drinking in the stands during the game I was suspended for. So they threw me out of the program. So they pull a scholarship. Okay. So, Scotty's now got no scholarship. He, Arizona or Phoenix at the time who had drafted him, cut him loose. They said, we don't want any part of you. And here's a six foot six talented goaltender. So, you know, he, he, no talk about quitting drinking at all. Um, kicks around the minors. I get a phone call two years later. He said, coach, I'm in Vegas. I'm fucked. I missed the bus. We had a, he's playing in the SP, right? The South, Southern Pacific, whatever league. And he said, I missed the bus. And I said, well, catch it, man. Grab a cab. Do whatever you got to do. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. That was two weeks ago. So if you look at his stats, there's a year where he only played like three or four games. That was that year where he just, he stayed in Vegas for two weeks after he missed the bus. Um, and then we got him clean. He got himself clean. But there, you know, um, and... He made a comeback and he, you know, he graduated to the East Coast League and then the American League and then the National Hockey League. And he was crows back up in Chicago and played an instrumental role in winning a Stanley Cup. And, you know, and I, I talked to him through that Stanley Cup run and I can remember him saying, like, oh, what if we win? Like, am I going to drink? Like, I hope not. And in the meantime, I'm like, no, you got this. And like, you're, you know, and he didn't. And then he signs a deal with Carolina. And goaltending is the one position in the world you can't hide. You can't hide if you're a goal, you know, it is, um, you know, six line or a six, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, four. You can hide. You can play the role. You can as a goal. They signed him four years, 16 million, number one goaltender. And it changed things for him. And I remember we were sitting at a Fuddruckers in Andover, Mass. And he's like, uh, Jame, I, I don't know if I want to be number one. Like it was perfect in Chicago. Like, this is tough. And, and, and Scott's, you know, a strong willed guy. And, and, but he broke and he said, you know, I, I've been drinking a little bit and it started with one or two beers here and there. And he, he knows, like he only got, he only became successful because he quit. His life's a disaster when he drinks. And it was one or two. And then it was three or four. And then I talked to guys in the league who were saying, oh man, we were out with Scotty a couple weeks ago and he was pretty loaded. And it just spiraled out of control. And he went back into treatment that summer before his first year in Carolina. And it lasted a few months. Um, but, you know, a year and a half later, they bought him out. And he's been out of the league ever since. And, you know, he, we still communicate quite often. He's, he's not clean and sober again yet. Um, but he's aware and he struggles with it. And, but, you know, it's a perfect example of using and you're down here and then he got to here and it just it's it's the proof is it's there guys 
You know, when you're clean and sober, your life isn't always going to be perfect when you're clean and sober. Like my life sucks sometimes. It's horrible. You know, like it really is. There, there are issues. And, and so, it, you know, it doesn't mean life's going to be perfect, but you have a better opportunity for your life to be better if you're clean and sober. And, you know, Scott's a perfect example of that. And God willing, he straightens his act out again. But it's, um, you know, that's just kind of like a side story about, you know, out of control and a name that people kind of know. And they might be thinking, where is he now? Well, he started to drink again and now he's out of the league. You know, that's how it affects some people. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, I was going to mention, I don't know if it's a question, more of a comment. I think like a lot of people forget that like professional athletes are, or don't even, I don't know if they have like a, they just assume that they don't have any issues that they're superhuman, oh. right? And they don't have personal stuff going on, right? Like kind of placed on a pedestal type thing. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of forget. Yeah. But. And you know, he said, I, I don't want, I don't know if I'm going to be the number one guy. He said, it's all on me. I was crows back up in Chicago. It was perfect. I came in once in a while, no pressure. You know, now I'm the guy and it broke him. It broke him, you know? So yeah, you, um, and, and they're not, you know, they're just like the three of us. Like they know that it's wrong and the guilt eats them up. But, you know, we've all been there. Anybody listen to this has been there too. It's hard to stop. You know, we can, and you just one day have to fucking do it. But it's, uh, yeah, the proof is out there. It's hard to do. Um, but the proof's also out there that it works. You know, it does. Absolutely. Um, Jamie, I had a quick question for you. Sure. Um, so you you went to an outpatient before you went to an inpatient program. Yes. Um, do you find there were pros and cons of both? Or um, uh, what the, were your main takeaways from each one, do you think? Um, well, the outpatient program was, I didn't really have a choice. It was like, you know, we couldn't get into a treatment center. There was a waiting list everywhere. We tried all kinds of different facilities. I say we, I mean my parents and I. Um, and then we found this, that, you know, you went every day at nine o'clock and you left at five and it, there was programs throughout the day. And it worked for me because I stopped my life, moved into my parents' place. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to kind of put my life on hold. So it's hard for some people. They can't, you know, they can't, they can't quit their job. They can't, you know, I, I was in a situation where my, my mom and dad were able to kind of support and help me um, through this process. And the outpatient program was okay. I mean, you feel like a bit of a child. You know, I did anyways, because my mom's driving me there in the morning. I'm 28, seven years old, and she's bringing me back home. My parents are cooking me dinner. I'm living at their house. And, but, but it was, um, it was a, it was a, at the end of the day, it was a pretty good experience for me. And I was surrounded by people who were in the same situation. And that's what I can't emphasize enough to people that, you know, a pregnant woman can't talk to, I can't talk to a pregnant woman about what it's like to be pregnant. I can't, I, I don't know. I don't have a clue. And, you know, most people don't know what it's like to be an addict, you know, and, and so to be in that environment and it, it was, um, it was helpful. I think that I would have probably preferred to be in a facility at that point in time to, because, you know, you feel very, I felt very vulnerable. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, pros and cons. I think there are more cons to being in an outpatient program than there are pros personally, but it worked for me. 
Um, but I really enjoyed the fishbowl of the, um, of the, you know, being at Homewood and, you know, they had a bowling alley and they, we played baseball and like it was, they, you learned how to eat and your diet, how important nutrition is. And uh, yeah, so I, 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 coming out of treatment is hard, as I'm sure you guys know. And, and that's where, you know, that's where I like to come in and help people is when they, when they are getting out and that fear of leaving the fishbowl, right? You're not surrounded and now you're on your own. You know, when you first get out of that facility, um, those first six months are crucial, you know, and that's, uh, but anyways, to answer your question, I, I think I would rather do an, in, you know, inpatient all the way, but if you don't have a choice, you got to do both. Right. Yeah. 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 Have you, have you heard of uh, the refuge recovery? No, I have not. Okay. Cause it's, we had a couple guests on that do that. It's, uh, it's a kind of like based on Buddhism kind of background, yeah. uh, um kind of mixes like the aa i guess and na with that so i was curious if you kind of heard of that at all no but i i really um dug kind of deep into the whole meditation and spirituality and and have been on like i said a, a number of different meditation retreats and like a couple in joshua tree california and you know silent retreats and except for when you're in teachings and uh and or with a mentor where you can ask questions and stuff. And, and it's kind of cool. Like they say, you know, you can listen to music, but listen to one song and then think on it. Or you can read a book, but read one page and think on it. Don't just get lost in it like an addict would. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I can see how that would be very helpful. Like the whole, the whole meditation and just kind of slowing the brain down. Right, man. Like I got a popcorn machine in my head that never stops. You know what I mean? Like it is unbelievable right now. It's, I got 162 things in my head right now. But I only have one thing I should be worrying about in this talk right here, you know, but it's just sometimes you need to slow down. Right. But I'm damn grateful. You know, 23 years. I forget sometimes how long it is. Um, you know, it's it's a long time. Uh, but I, I've got a room. I got a tattoo here. that says find a way like right there. You know what I mean? Like I look at that nonstop. Whether it's getting out of bed in the morning or being on time for this or whatever it is, you know, I still it's. Um, yeah, you, I don't know. Use different things to help motivate yourself, I guess. Yeah. Dave, you got any more questions for Jamie? Well, I was just going to say, I was telling the guys before, um, you know, when I first met you back quite a while ago. I didn't really, I didn't really know you. I didn't know your story. And uh, I would have never thought, I mean, it's, I don't really know how to word it. I think sometimes people think that if they're clean and sober or if they get clean and sober, they're going to lose that, that uh, life that they have. And I would never have thought, you know, back then meeting you that you were someone sober because you're such an outgoing, funny guy, uh, charismatic, yeah. you know, like, thank you. I think yeah. sometimes that's a stigma that like people think sometimes they're afraid they're going to lose whatever they, who have. they are. So, yeah. Who they are. So, um, I don't know. I think you're just a kind of a perfect, who they perfect think example of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not easy. It's not easy. And I fight through it. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, fuck, am I ever uncomfortable right now? But, you know, not now, but like in, in social situations and, but it's, you know, you do what you got to do. I golf a lot because, you know, that's where I can, you know, be with my buddies and I don't have, to, I mean, a few of them, I'll have some beers in the golf course, but like, that's kind of where I do my socializing now is, you know, on the golf course. And that's how I get to see everybody. And I still stay away from the, you know, nighttime situations as much as I can. Uh, uh, and my, you know, I, army. 
um, the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes to support me. He quit drinking and he's 17 years sober just to have my back. He didn't have an issue. He did not have an issue, but he 17 years sober now just to, you know, I got you, man. You know, and, and when you have a support group like that and, and a group of friends that are willing to, you know, take those types of steps, then, you know, I can't, there's a lot of people I don't want to let down, including myself, but mostly myself. But, you know, it's, um, that's yeah, that's it's, amazing. Uh, it's been an interesting, interesting life. That's for sure. Awesome. Absolutely. Jamie, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you for everything that you do. And we're just really appreciative to have you here today. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, um, yeah, any any opportunity I have, um, yeah, to do something like this, I love it. So, Dave, I appreciate it. Was great seeing you again, and uh, I really appreciate you asking me to come on. Um, and anytime, I'd, uh, and if you guys need anything, please just let me know. Absolutely, thank you so All much. All right, thanks, thanks boys. Yeah. Thanks, All right. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Thank you for listening. Uh,